and welcome to the Raptors show on the Sportsnet Radio Network presented by Coors Light. Go from full-time to game-time Coors Light made to chill. Make sure you find the Raptors show wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe and please rate and review the show. I'm your host, William Liu. I'm joined by co-host Blake Murphy. Big thanks to Blake for holding it down yesterday. I mean, I talked to you yesterday, but obviously I was stuck in a different city. How you doing, man? You all right? Yeah, I'm good, man. How are you? Nice shirt, buddy. Thanks, man. A little Christmas gift from Alex Wong. Yeah. I uh, felt it was appropriate after that banger of a Thunder Celtics uh-huh. game last night where, uh, yeah, Celtics threw the best defensive backcourt in basketball at Shea. Then he was picking it apart enough that they were like, ah, we've got to start switching Tatum onto him. And uh, there wasn't really an answer for Shea or for J-Dub in that one. Another signature win for the Thunder. So I thought it was a, I mean, it's also like feels like a can ball week anyway uh, with RJ being a Raptor sure. now and everything yeah. like that. So. Mm. Nice. Felt appropriate. Yeah, shout out to Lou Dort as well, also on the shirt. Yeah, much lower down. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know what, though? It's fine. It's fine. It's Can totally we just fine. stand up and twirl? Uh, see I, if there's I, anything on the back? I love that we're describing our outfits to uh, a podcast, mostly a uh, crowd. By the way, I'm, I'm, my outfit, I'm, I'm kind of dressed like Michael Grange cosplay right now. Yeah, more uh, Eric Kareem cosplay oh, than, Eric than Michael Grange. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, how come every uh, Raptors media guy wears plaid? It's every sports media person. It's just yeah. you, you get a, a beard. Um, okay. Some like low energy indie music and a, a closet Wilco? full of flannels when you get, yeah. yeah. I'm not a Wilco guy, but yeah. Sure. Okay. Yeah. No Stuff one wants like to hear this. Yeah. Uh, what people want to hear about today. So this is our plan. Um, we are going to look at the Raptors. Obviously, they made the trade. Uh, how should this team operate in the short term in terms of the next week, next month, even before the trade deadline? Um, how should this current team play now that the Raptors have added Emmanuel quickly and RJ Barrett to it? Um, you know, we'll look at that. What's the new rotation going to look like? How should they run offense? How should they run defense, et cetera, et cetera. Then we are going to look at the bigger picture. What's the front office going to do with this team? Um, you know, which pieces sort of fit long-term? How does all of it fit around Scotty Barnes? It's the biggest question. Then, of course, segment three, we're going to check in with Mark Stein. As we do every uh, Wednesday, we're going to check in with Mark Stein. He has some reporting around, obviously, the OG trade. Uh, here's some information on if Pascal is sort of next out the door or if any other kind of trade talks happen. I also have a bit of a Raptors um, conspiracy theory kind of thing to run by him. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we will see on that front. Uh, I guess that's a teaser. And then in segment four, we are going to talk with Steve Jones of uh, the Donker Spot um, who is going to help us break down even further how the new version of the Raptors look for the moment. But let's start with that conversation, Blake. And I guess my biggest thought to you right now is just now that the Raptors have seemingly more options on offense, what should the pecking order be offensively for this new Raptors group? Well, it depends. Are you trying to uh, win a few more games and maybe get back into the playing situation? Or are you trying to take the long view here. And I, and I don't mean that to be glib and certainly not to mean that, say, a Scotty Barnes-centric offensive approach can't win you games. But we saw it the other night against Cleveland where that team barely won that game and they needed a very, very good Pascal Siakam offensive performance to get there. So if all you were trying to do is win games, Pascal is still going to be a very large part of it. He's going to be a large part of it regardless. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you are shifted into pure development and long-term mode, then maybe that is less of a necessity and you're okay taking some lumps. But so far this season, Scotty Barnes has taken huge leaps offensively. Pascal Siakam has been every bit as good a scorer as as we've seen him Mm -hmm. in his career. And those are the two things that are going to be at the very top of designing this offense. I I know there's 
new system. You want to pass more. They're third in assists per game mm-hmm. now. You want to do the DHO stuff. You certainly want to get Emmanuel quickly and RJ Barrett involved. Make sure Dennis and Gary still have roles off the bench, etc. But your two best players are still Scotty Barnes and Pascal Siakam for now. And the offense is going to, again, if you're trying to win games, the offense is going to flow through those two. Okay, so for the most part, those two things haven't changed. Because I totally agree, obviously. This is a team that needs to play through their top players. Honestly, regardless of whether they're trying to win or not, I mean, like, the t- the front office certainly is not tanking. So no, and, and I don't to mean, win. sorry, they're and I don't mean. like to have both things happen, but yeah. Yeah, I don't mean that, like, if they're not trying to win, you'd suddenly funnel 30% usage rate to Grady Dick. I just mean, like, yeah. there is a, di- like, the first couple weeks of the season were a good indicator, right? Where it was system, 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 everything's through the new offense, et cetera. And the half court offense was like process Sixers level bad. Mm -hmm. And it was only, you know, they got back up to respectability. They've actually had four games in a row of league average or better half court offense, which is the first time all season. Uh, which is exciting. It's like but, bringing home four uh, C pluses on your yeah, report card. Yeah, but four right? C pluses in no a row. Xbox for you. Not scattered in with a bunch of Ds. Um, yeah, fair. So, so what I mean by that is like, yeah, if it's, hey, we're installing the system and the system is the first priority and stuff, we saw how rough that that can look. Mm-hmm. And it was only once they found the right balance of, hey, yeah, Pascal's going to get a switch and attack in the post sometimes. Or Pascal's going to get a switch and string out a big and attack sometimes. Or Scotty is going to run to pick and roll and run one-on-one and stuff like that. It, would, it took a little bit for them to find the right balance of that. But those two things have been helping drive the offense to a more respectable level, not necessarily. The system being applied a little bit better and executed a little better is part of it. But when you still don't have shooting and you don't have like rim pressure, um, really the, the offense has looked its best still when it's running through Pascal and Scotty. So that's what I mean by developmental, not not you'd shift the possessions to other people significantly maybe, but that focus on like, hey, system first over playing through your best players. Yeah. Um, so I agree that those two things don't really change, even though the Raptors did make a pretty significant trade here. Um, I guess my question then is how do the Raptors use Emmanuel quickly? How do the Raptors use RJ Barrett once they get up to speed with this current team in mind? Because, you know, there's there's an argument with quickly – that you can just give him the ball and let him run a lot more pick and roll. Um, but we didn't really see as much of that in game one. Of course, again, they 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 did walk through and then they went onto the court. Like, yeah. it's not exactly, uh, I would be surprised if they even had like 10% of the playbook in. But, you know, do you want to see that? Do you want to see quickly run a lot of pick and rolls? Because I think what that would is it probably takes away a lot from Pascal's usage to do that, and Pascal's usage on this team clearly is one of the major factors if the Raptors want to approach respectability um, on offense. Yeah, look, the the reality of this is that something is going to have to give. The pieces sure, yeah, now exactly. fit better offensively, and, and the offensive dynamic, especially with the starting five, but even with those first two guys off the bench, makes sense. You have seven guys averaging double digits. Mm-hmm. Basically, you turned offensively, you turned OG into two guys that you can use as part of the mix and match offensively. However, Emmanuel quickly came in here with a 24% usage rate and his usage rates always been around that in New York. Now coming off the bench and playing 20 minutes a game, that's maybe doable in the starting lineup where Pascal and Scotty are also around 25% usage. That can be a little tougher. And if you're looking at, well, he's taking Dennis's spot in the rotation. Dennis's usage rate is under 20% for the year. Mm. It's just in crunch time where it's kind of felt like Dennis is overusing possessions or, sure, or is a yeah. little more shot happy or whatever. So over the course of the first 42 minutes or so of the game, Emmanuel quickly is a guy who uses more offensive possessions than Dennis Schroeder does. And then probably an even tougher adjustment to make is going to be that RJ Barrett is a guy who uses significantly 
more offensive possessions than OG Ananobi did. His usage rate in New York was 27% this year. It had been around that for the last three seasons. OG is obviously, you know, in Toronto was a get in where you fit in guy, like Mm -hmm. 18, 90% usage rate play finisher. Yeah. You'd you'd carve out one or two possessions a game where he could try to create for himself or whatever. But that to me is going to be the hardest thing to smooth over is how does RJ go from a usage rate that literally would be first on the Raptors Mm -hmm. to a situation where if his usage rate is first on this team with Scotty Barnes and Pascal Siakam and Emmanuel quickly, I think that that's going to be a problem given RJ's, you know, efficiency and the optimistic view here Mm -hmm. is generally when high usage guys are asked to do a little bit less, the possessions that get chopped off are the least efficient ones. Yeah. Five seconds on the clock, go create for us. You size a guy up one-on-one without great spacing and you decide to take it because that's your time and that's your possession anyway. Usually those are the kind of possessions we see lopped off. So theoretically, R.J. Barrett at 22, 23% usage should be a more efficient version of R.J. Barrett. We just haven't seen R.J. play that role Mm -hmm. since his second season in New York. So probably in terms of how the touches are spread around, that is where my biggest curiosity is. Emmanuel quickly will figure it out. You can can run a little bit more pick and roll. You can take the Dennis possessions. You can have him run bench units a little bit more, and we'll talk about some of those iterations. But to me, it's how do you make space for R.J. Barrett in a – role that even if he takes on a smaller role, it's going to be bigger than OG's role. It's just the way RJ Barrett plays and, you know, the way that he has operated in New York. So how do you do that? And how does RJ do that? Because his usage is going to come down a little bit. Last game, it was not down. Uh, It was 30%. Uh, It was not down, yeah. But, um, you know, I think that's kind of where I see the most friction being role-wise. You can get past a little bit of that with rotations and stuff, but not all the way. How do you see that shaking out? So um, I, I totally agree with you. Quickly, his ability to play on and off the ball, it makes him a nice, easy fit into pretty much whatever you really want to do. Um, I think that he should be given that chance to essentially do what Dennis did with the starting lineup to start the year with a bigger, obviously, threat of him scoring, especially with the pull-up three. I think that's going to be a nice weapon for the Raptors. Him relocating, moving off ball, I think that fits in really nicely with what Scotty and Pascal want to do. Whether you want to run quickly uh, pick and rolls with Scotty, whether you want to run his pick and rolls with Jakob, I, I think they're both good options once they get to know each other and sort of figure out how they want to operate. RJ is more tricky for me in the starting five because, you know, I think like, whatever Jakob's obviously going to be the fifth option. Um, you know, one of Scotty and Pascal uh, and uh, Pascal will be the first, and the other will be the second option. So quickly, will, I guess be the third option. That basically means that RJ has to be the fourth option with the starting group. And in that case, I'm thinking about, like, okay, how much of what OG did can you do? Like, can you catch and shoot from the corners? Are you comfortable largely playing off ball like that? Um, Are you able to get out in transition? We saw a lot of that with RJ. That's something that the Knicks did a lot with RJ, too, was use him as a transition option. He's a leak-out guy. He can handle. He can get his own shot. We saw him even in his first game with the Raptors, you know, have back-to-back possessions where he scored one-on-two in transition. Like, that's an impressive ability to be able to do that. Um, I think my question then is, okay, so for the transition lineups, that's where you'll probably see increased usage for quickly where he's second option with some of these lineups and then increased usage for RJ where he could even be the first option with a lot of secondary um, lineups that include a lot of bench players. Because I think what's interesting to me is, you know, I wanted to know your thoughts on, do you think RJ is like a good pick and roll player? 
like or, or can be a, a functionally good pick and roll yeah, player. Yeah, I think if he is like a second side operator okay, and like okay. and, and so those the bench units you mentioned are interesting because that is something that RJ did a lot of in New York. Like mm. we're going to see the Knicks operate differently now. They they've kind of shifted Brunson into that role uh, at least in the first game here, but RJ was the first sub off mm-hmm. and would come back in with bench guys. He played So two, he was Scotty basically. He played them. 213 yeah. minutes this year with no Brunson, no Randall on the floor. Okay. So that's not a huge, but that's like a, a quarter of his minutes that could that could explain like part of why his usage is so high yeah and like yeah. in those units the Knicks absolutely like look he's still playing with quickly for most of those minutes mm-hmm. but yeah. his usage rate in those minutes was 32 percent okay all right that's that's he's he's not Luca or LeBron right <laughs> so that. yeah. that's that's a part of what's going on here yeah, now there's sure. also you know in the minutes that he played with one of Brunson or Randall on his mm-hmm. usage dropped to 26 percent that's okay. a big difference that would still be first on the Raptors though so yeah I think what we're seeing here is even with Brunson and Randall two borderline all NBA offensive pieces he was still using a ton of possessions mm. um, in part because Mitchell Robinson just doesn't use like he's he's a lob catcher that's a yeah, yeah. and More like he's, he's incredibly effective like that yeah. and you know their offensive dynamical tweak now not only because rj's out but because hartenstein can do more as a as a passer and dho kind of guy mm-hmm. um but yeah basically they you know and whichever starter was the fourth starter whether it was divincenzo or quentin grimes it was like well you go spot up mm-hmm. um so still anyway the point is what you're saying is something the Knicks did as well. RJ, you come out first. Mm-hmm. You come in with the bench unit, whether it's RJ plus four or with, I mean, plus four, but quickly as a bench piece is like, yeah. that's different than what we've talked about with the Raptors where it's Scotty plus bench. If Emmanuel quickly is coming off your bench, mm-hmm. those units make a lot more sense versus if it's Malachi Flynn, right? So um, so they did do that with RJ and still his usage rate with alongside all-star caliber starters was still really high. So even acknowledging you can do that rotation-wise, there's still going to be a little bit of, of friction there, I think. Yeah, look, I don't mind RJ trying to initiate more and more offense for the second unit. Um, I think, obviously, Dennis is going to be the reserve point guard going forward. Um, so he's going to have a fair share of possessions used. But generally speaking, like, in the first game, for example, Dennis took seven shots. Uh, five were catch-and-shoot threes. Two were, like, re- those really quick, like, um, burst pass the defender and get all those to the basket layups. Dennis is really good at doing that. Um, and then the rest of it was just setting up the plays for the rest of the guys. I think that's a comfortable role for him. I'm not saying Dennis only takes seven shots going forward, but like generally speaking, coming off the bench, that reserve guard, like, you know, I, I'm very confident in what Dennis can do. He's going to run the, the show a little bit. I guess my question is like, okay, so right now with the second unit, you have a, a whole chunk of possessions that are being used where Gary's going to not initiate offense, but the play is set up for Gary to come off a curl, make a decision, you know, maybe get downhill, maybe make the next pass out. I wouldn't mind if some of those possessions are just redistributed towards RJ, to be honest, because I think RJ is probably more an effective, um, you know, like initial driver of the action. Of course, it requires them to actually pass more often. That's going to be the big challenge for him, yeah, right? Yeah. It's like, but I'd rather you, Gary as a finisher off of those RJ. Sequences. Certainly. And yeah. and like Gary doing second side, like I, I know I just said you can get RJ involved as a second side uh, pick and roll guy. Mm. But if RJ is the main initiator, then Gary coming off of that off ball stuff he does on the weak side where he yeah. comes off a, a pin down or a stagger pin down or whatever. And a lot of times he'll veer and use that to get into his elbow range package but yeah. if you can push that up above the three-point line and, and defenses have to respect it a little bit more because there is more of a threat on the other side it's not a malachi flynn precious achua pick and roll on the other side of the which floor. they just ignore yeah. exactly so there there's some room 
um, for that. And, but then, yeah, the thing you said there is kind of the the key piece. It is on RJ then if that becomes his role in those units to become more of a playmaker because that was not really how he operated in those Knicks bench units. He was, you know, score first pretty significantly mm-hmm. uh, in those yeah. units. So I'm not saying that's something he can't add. I mean, he's 23 years old. He's a, he's a very hard worker. It wouldn't surprise really anyone if he added other stuff to his game. Um, and, and like he was in those units with Josh Hart and Emmanuel quickly and Isaiah Hartenstein. And a lot of the times, DiVincenzo or Grimes, like it's like, that's for a bench unit in the NBA. That has a lot of spacing that oh, has yeah. a secondary ball handler that has a big, you can work with those next bench torched the Raptors twice. That's why the Raptors lost both games to New York. And so it's far. even after this trade, it's a much better bench than the Raptors sure. have yeah, like yeah, that exactly. bench he was operating. in. so my, my point is if he wasn't finding his way to a lot of playmaking in that unit. Mm. Now, you know, he's going to have a little worse spacing in those bench units. He's going to have fewer guys to kick it out to and play around. Um, you know, I'd be a little worried about wh- what that looks like, but also I'm sure it's a challenge for him and it's something they've sat down and been like, hey, we need you to be more of like a combo guard instead of pure score in these bench units. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be ideal because I think that's the next step for his development as well. That on top of being more efficient just overall with this approach. The quickly thing with, because I also want to see some minutes with quickly running point and Scotty playing small ball center mm-hmm. and seeing that two-man game without Jakob and Pascal on the floor. Because yeah. I think that that's where you can see the most spacing. That probably only happens with the second unit as well. So we're kind of putting a lot of burden on the second unit to be able to provide opportunities to these other guys to score. Having said that, though, that's actually a good problem because I think the starting unit can definitely score now. And if you're going to run a lot of Emmanuel quickly or RJ Barrett with the second unit, I think the second unit can score. Um, what do you think are the guys that should come off this bench? Like, first off, how deep should Darko go into his current bench right now? Um, and who's the, who are those guys? I mean, we know that obviously Dennis and Gary are going to play. Past that, who else? Yeah, so, I mean, the first question to this, so I'm going to kick it back to you before I okay, answer yeah, your question sure. in full, but what is your appetite? Because this is something, this is part of why Quickly was available, is that he's six foot three, and I think he's probably closer to 6'2 than 6'3. Okay. He was playing with a guy in Jalen Brunson in New York who's only 6'1, mm-hmm. if that, and Dennis Schroeder is a little bit bigger than Jalen Brunson, but not really. And Tom Thibodeau is a traditionalist and likes a lot of size on the floor. Mm. So he's not the same as Darko in this regard, but he really didn't want to play a lot of quickly and Brunson minutes together, which is part of why quickly was available. Instead of just saying, we're going to play two guards together more often. He was like, no, that's too small. We'll maybe only do that, you know, eight, nine, 10 minutes a game. Mm -hmm. What is your appetite for? And let's assume this will only happen. You know, you're not going to close the game this way necessarily, but for quickly and Dennis Schroeder to share the floor together, um, because that I think will dictate a little bit of how you need to make these rotation patterns and just how many minutes Dennis is soaking up off the bench. Um, I don't think it's as much of a problem for Toronto. Um, I agree. Let, let's be honest. I think Toronto and New York have wildly different ambitions for what's going to happen this season. New York is trying to get past the second round of the playoffs. And Toronto is maybe hopefully trying to keep this team together and maybe go to like a play in, you know, so there's just totally different ambitions here. Um, I think for the Raptors, like, yeah, I mean, there's going to be, unless you're only going to play quickly, like 30 minutes and Dennis 18 minutes, which is not going to happen, obviously, under Darko, you're going to see a fair number overlap. We even saw Malachi and Dennis playing together a fair amount. So I actually don't think that that's going to be a bad thing for the Raptors. My concern is what the second units like, it feels like both of those guys could really use a big to play off of. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we don't have that right now with the second unit. Like we, the Jonte Porter 
erasure won't stand. Uh, yeah, well, you know, we might have to try, Jonte, because like... Can I make... Uh, th- we'll do this more later in the show. I think he plays tonight. Oh, okay. He's against He's his call- old team All right. in Memphis. Uh, Otto Porter Jr. is questionable. Mm. The Thad Young at center minutes didn't go that well the other day. Um, Surprise. I yeah. know that Memphis is not the hugest team with how many injuries they have right now, uh, uh, but yeah. I could see it. I think he I think he makes his debut tonight. Okay. That'd be a nice story. I, I would love to have that happen and, and for good things to happen to Jonte so that you have more things to add to your story. Yeah, it's uh, it's... <laughs> Honestly, it's mostly done. I'm just waiting for him to play now. So I think maybe oh, I'm okay. trying to wish this into existence. But I do think there yeah. is a, you mentioned they, that they need a big to play with. And, and Jonte Porter is not a uh, uh, like rim running mm-hmm. big, but he's a guy. If you look at what the Raptors want to do offensively, he's a really good passer. He's good in those high post situations, yeah. um, you know, whether it's DHO or, or kind of a, a pick and roll where he's a short roll pass kind of thread or even a pop thread. He's hitting threes at like a high 30% rate in the G League this year. So um, maybe that's a, an option there as well. I guess um, the the question that flows from this, so you said that Dennis and Quickly could both probably use a big in the second unit. Yep. You want Scotty Barnes to spend some minutes as a small ball five in those second units. Um, is the, I guess the answer to this is yes, obviously the way the minutes distribute, but the lineups where Scotty is the only point guard on the floor are probably done, right? You're always going to have one of Quickly or Schroeder yeah, out there. I even so. if, even if Scotty is operating as the point guard, yeah, yeah, yeah. you have someone to bring the ball up. You have someone to well, co-initiate. But... Darko was very resistant on this idea. Like, that's why the starting lineup didn't change yeah. for, like, 30 games. Yeah. And then it changed for, like, a week, and then the Raptors traded for a point guard of the future. So, like, I don't think that there was a comfort there from Darko to try to do it. And so that's... I guess that's okay. Like, I don't actually want to see him without guards. I think that having more guards is going to help Scotty operate. Guards also help your spacing. So, well, that too. Especially uh, quickly. It's a nice problem. It's a nice yeah. thing. We're just exploring the idea of spacing. It's not even a problem. It's just, I honestly, it feels like a problem sometimes, but we're coming from a place of a problem and just figuring out yes. how to, like, what a non-problem looks like now is the is the thing. And, like, Look, Scotty Barnes is still going to have the ball in his hands a lot. He's going to have a lot of assists. He's going to run. It's going to look like he is the point guard a lot. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, probably one of quickly a shooter on the floor all the time. I'd also like to see some of Scotty handling and then a shooting guard, like in this case quickly, maybe screening for him. Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure how much of that was done in New York. I suspect not very much. But um, I think in theory that could actually work kind of nicely. It would require, obviously, for quickly to – you know, just be a good screener and, and know how to sort of like flare out and, and get Scotty that space. But there's ways to use that. But beyond that, though, I mean, who else is coming off that bench? I suppose Chris. Yeah, I mean, I think Boucher is pretty clearly in okay. there right now. So you're going to have Schroeder and, and Gary Trent, and those guys are going to take up the bulk of the minutes. Be- sure. Yeah, and, yeah. and look, but that's a small. Uh, you're you're bringing two more guards off the bench. Now yeah, you're small. You're a little small. So I think Boucher's in there right now. We saw Jalen McDaniel's for a minute, but it looks like Boucher's ahead of him right now. And yeah, I think he should be ahead of him, to be even clear. with the lack of precious, I still, I don't love playing Boucher and McDaniels together. I think it's, it's too many of the too same little. weakness. Yeah. It's, it's not, you're not, neither guy could really create either. No, you have to be really locked down and defend. To, and that's the thing. It's like, if you're going to play a lineup with those, with yeah. two of those kind of guys, or even three, which the Raptors would try to do sometimes, you've got to be so good defensively because all your offense is going to come in transition. Sure. Yeah. So I, I would, and then like, both of them have to play if Jonte Porter and Thad Young aren't going to play because, uh, like, Otto could be out as well. Right. Um, we're not going to see. Conditioning yeah, we're not going to see Grady Dick yeah. for a while. Um, so yeah, I think right now it's Dennis, Gary, Chris Boucher, and then you know you could put Otto in there again. He's questionable tonight. He's he's got a knee strain thing going on. 
Um, so maybe tonight is a night that you see Jalen, but this is why, again, I come back to, I think there's a spot for Jonte Porter to, to get a look here as a, as a kind of, you know, as far as bench bigs go, I think mm-hmm. the offensive package is there at like something close to an NBA level, um, you know, and you'll see how the defense translates and stuff like that. But we're talking about like eight, nine, 10 minutes a game off the bench, right? Like, yeah. like, cause you're going to, Pertle's still going to play, you know, high twenties in minutes. He's, he's been averaging about 25, 26 on the year. And then you're going to play some minutes probably where Scotty is the, the five, mm-hmm. even if role wise, it doesn't necessarily look that way, especially against a team like Memphis, where I think when, when Jaron is the key big in those more bench heavy units, Scotty on Jaron makes a lot of sense. We'll talk about that later in the show. Right. Um, but I don't know. How do you, how do you see it? Because I think, I think three spots, Dennis, Gary, and Chris are pretty spoken for. And then I guess, yeah, it's Otto, Jalen, Thad, Jonte for what should amount to one spot. Cause I still don't, I don't think you're going to eight man rotation, even though they basically no. did the other night. Yeah. I don't think they're going to go to eight man rotation yet. Yeah, I, I think nine, you probably will have to cycle through. I guess one of my questions is just like, all of a sudden Gary kind of stands out a little bit as like an awkward fit. Cause even going back to what we said earlier about, you know, Ken Dennis and quickly play together. I think they can play together. The three just shouldn't be Gary then. Because then you're something really small. Yeah. You know? You are. I, I mean, Gary's 6'5", and, like, against opposing... Like, most benches in the league are smaller. But he right? doesn't contribute towards rebounding, no, which he, I feel like you really that's need the for thing. that group. I guess you have to ask him to play bigger then. Yes, yes. And, and, and who knows? Maybe that's an ask that he's able to... Like, Fulfill, but offensively, I think it's fine. But yeah, you've, you've fine, then yeah. got your undersized at four positions probably because yeah, you're exactly. undersized at center no matter which of these guys you're bringing exactly. on. And then you're undersized one, two, three because Dennis is small for a point guard. Emmanuel is really small for a shooting guard. Gary's right. very small for a small forward. So uh, you those lineups then, it's the opposite of what we're talking about with Boucher and Jalen where like those those lineups better score like crazy because you're probably I mean, going to give should, some of it Honestly, back. but... Yeah, um, that that's where Gary kind of make, you know feels a little bit awkward with that second unit. But in any case, I, I think like we, we we agree on obviously the starting five. I think we should just keep it as is right now. You keep RJ, you keep uh, quickly in there. Like I, you don't you don't see any other alternatives to that, do you? Well, this is what I was going to ask you with Gary's kind of awkward fit there now, and we're talking about hey, what if RJ ran you know had more offensive role in some of these bench units? I don't think this will happen, but I just wanted your take on it. Would you try to get a look at Gary and RJ's spot, and then your your starting lineup has a little bit more spacing? Your bench doesn't have as much shooting, but you know maybe offensively it's a little, like because then you have the size with RJ as that second guard. Would you give that a look, or are we am I overthinking at that point since RJ is just a, a straight up better player? I don't think it's going to happen, but I do think that there's probably some merit in exploring that idea because essentially right now you're bringing like your three small forwards, you're starting all three of them together essentially mm-hmm. in, in Pascal Scotty and, and RJ. Like, and then of course, then it leaves your second unit kind of a little bit short. Now, of course, there's ways to massage the rotation so that you can, you know, maintain that some size on the floor. But yeah, that's, that's, that's part of the issues that you run into. But I mean, Realistically, I think RJ is dynamic enough where he, to me it's like, yes, Gary's a better shooter than him, but uh, RJ can do so many other things. Um, mm-hmm. He and fits drive the more transition actions. identity of the starting unit too, where they, exactly. they do get out yeah. and run a lot early in games. Yeah. Uh, RJ's also only. I, also, this, Gary's got to find a way to be effective off the bench. Like, yeah. this has been like a three year trend now. But. And I was just about to say, like, RJ's only come off the bench once in his whole career, and it was the first game back from injury in his rookie season. Okay. Um, so, like, he would have to learn that as well. But yeah, I, I get this in my in my mentions all the time of like, well, Gary's so much better with the starters. Is that a case to start him? I think if you want to make a basketball case for Gary Trent Jr. to start because of the fit and the way the rotations line up, awesome. But the reality is 95% of players in the league would play better alongside better teammates. Mm. You are struggling off the bench is not a good argument for you to be in the starting line. But you got to make the basketball case for me 
not the, hey, you're struggling in this other role. Why don't we promote you? Mm. Fair enough. It's a little, and look, that this is an awkward time to have this conversation because sure, Gary's yeah. played a little better lately. Yeah. Um, I guess way, not really last game, but the handful of games. No, I thought that. even last game he was fine. He was like pretty active. I, that's the thing. Like if he's going to come off this, the bench right now, especially with other offensive pieces, I needed to contribute more defensively. Yeah. So like how disruptive can you be? Um, and he had that steal. He took away for a dunk the other game. Yeah. Um, how much is he going to be willing to contribute on the glass? Because like, I mean, the, the, the running joke with Gary is like the stat line is going to be like 20 0 yeah. kind of thing. It can't be that, though. Like, I think the Raptors actually do need different things from Gary. And, like, he had so. 10 rebounds against Charlotte. That was really random. It, it yeah. is random, but, like, you are obviously... Was that not his first career double-double, Yeah, too? it was. Yeah. Well, like, you're... And look... He's played a lot of games, man. It was his first career double-double, but, like, you're capable of that. You just did it. Yes. Yes, that is true. Um, and so, they were all defensive rebounds. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Yeah, I, I think that's actually what we would need, but I think it will require him to, you know, make a pretty sizable shift... Um, to that playing zone. By the way, describing this right now, it really makes me feel bad that Christian Coloco can't participate right now yeah. because I feel like Christian would actually fit really nicely into what the second unit needs. A guy who can screen, catch some lobs, you know, give something. I'm not not as the same as Mitchell Robinson because he's a better player, much better player, but like quickly had success playing with that style of player as a teammate. Um, you know, somebody who can protect the paint, all of a sudden your, you know, rim protection doesn't look so bad with the second unit and also potentially somebody who can, I don't know, maybe this is purely theoretical, but we did see him hit like a game clinching three one time against the Suns last season. That was fun. Like I, I do miss Christian a lot and I feel like in the fit of this second unit, he would actually answer um, some of the weaknesses that they have. So it's unfortunate he can't play. Yeah. And on, and look, I get, I get asked this one a lot too. Mm -hmm. And I get that people are curious, but, and I've tweeted this, so I'll just say it here as well. Yeah, it is a medical issue that Christian Coloco is dealing with. So it's not handled the same as injuries. If this were his comeback from a torn ACL or a high ankle sprain or something like that, we would be getting more regular updates. But the way that medical situations are handled in the NBA and specifically with the Raptors team that wants to be respectful of the player's privacy, we're not going to get those updates. We check in as media every so often to see if there's an update, to see if his you know, change in status or, hey, we see him doing individual work. Is he doing any team level work? The answer to those questions has been there is no update on his status. Indefinite is indefinite. So I understand the curiosity and frustration, but mm -hmm. there's not a Christian Coloco update coming until there is one. Um, and again, it's handled a little differently than an injury because it's a medical situation. So understand the curiosity and, and occasional, sure. yeah. you know, frustration at the lack of information, but that's what the situation is. And if we're talking, you know, if we're, let's get optimistic and, and he's coming back sometime soon. Theoretically, he's been out of action for oh, at least six rusty. months. He's going to need some nine Oh five time yeah. to, to get back up to where he he's contributing. So um, obviously hoping the the best for him and, and the specifics of those situation, but I don't think we can talk about him being in a mix for the NBA Raptors uh, anytime imminently. So, yeah. And I look totally, man, I, I, I understand where curiosity comes into this, but this is also like a respect thing. Like I, mm -hmm. this is something where it's like, it's not some conspiracy. It's not like, oh, there's trade interest, you know, whatever. Like, this is just, like, health. Yeah. It's a man. And, so, again, medical. he's ready to play, he'll be playing. Yeah, medical treated differently you know. than, than an injury would be. Exactly. Um, okay, last question on you uh, sure. before What's we up? talk some big picture stuff after the break. We, this is what we're doing starting. This is what we're doing rotation-wise. Last game, Jakob Pertl closed, which hasn't been all that common. Yeah. We know... I think we can pretty safely say Pascal and Scotty are going to be on the floor in any close game, any yeah, situation course. like that, yeah. barring uh, you can't get a timeout to, to bring him back in uh, early in the season. Okay, Darko, you'll, you'll, you'll learn. Three okay. of quickly, 
Dennis, uh-huh. Trent, RJ, Jakob yeah. are going to close. Some of that's going to be game flow and matchup. Yeah, for we sure. saw him try to juggle, juggle all three of those guards in two spots, though, last game, where quickly RJ and Dennis were all in and out mm-hmm. in closing time. Do you have a lean on that, or is that entirely going to be game and situation dependent to you? Um, I, there's obviously a, a huge element as we game and you know situation dependent. For example, you mentioned Jakob closing the other game. It's because Cleveland played 48 minutes of Jared Allen or Tristan Thompson, and so it's going to necessitate that. You're I'm probably- honestly still shocked that Tristan Thompson didn't come down with a huge clutch offensive rebound just because that's that's what he's done. Yeah. It's, anyway, shout out to Tristan Thompson. Um. But, like, that obviously will require Jakob to be on the floor, right? But I, I think in certain other games, you'll probably see them close small. The issue with closing small now, and, and not to make everything an issue, but, I, again, I'm just thinking about how this thing would work. You now no longer have OG, which allowed you to play small but still give you a, a, a great element of defense on the floor, even as a small ball unit. Hopefully, RJ can step into that to, to some degree. I think he can with the rebounding, for example. Um but now all of a sudden, if you don't close with Jakob on the floor, like I guess it's Scotty, Pascal, and RJ, which is not necessarily like a lockdown trio. They're not bad, but I just mean that like compared to most front courts down the stretch. Um, I think there were probably less reliance on, you know, Dennis. We'll see. Because it does seem like Darko really trusts him. Mm-hmm. There will be certain instances where you want to get an inbound in or you want free throw shooters in, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, for sure, right? But it's not going to be an automatic yes the way that it has been. And last game, Dennis did close. Yeah. So I, I think if anything, like yeah. as you play these matchups, obviously, it, again, who's defending who well, who's the right match, who's who's doing the best job on jaw yeah. tonight of the who's guys who get a trouble? shot at. Things yeah. like that, yeah. If Dennis is closing, and we've talked about this before, I don't want to pick on him because he hasn't been the problem alone, but the shot distribution that we talked about off the top of the show has to be more reflective of the overall hierarchy in crunch time because it has gotten away from that a lot in close late games. Well, we saw last game, like, essentially quickly took on that usage role. And yeah. he got the Raptors some good looks. He just missed them, unfortunately. But he's I don't also mind that. he's also yeah. a guy that in those situations is probably going to have to be a, a little more willing to you know pass and relocate and stuff like that because like that floater range stuff is is good, but you got to hit those floaters at a pretty good percentage for those to be quality shots. Yeah. Like you got to hit those at like fifty percent for that to be a point per possession and a point per possession pretty low in the modern NBA. So. Um, you know, it, look, it was one game, and yeah. he's obviously trying to do a lot, and he didn't shoot a ton in that game uh, generally. But, um, yeah, I mean, I guess I just I just want more of the crunch time offense to involve. Scotty's had a big share of it, but mm-hmm. Pascal's been, like, unused in a lot of crunch time. So that, that's kind of what's on my mind there as well. Yeah, for sure. But I, I do think that the only thing, and, and we'll go to break after this, the only thing is just um, a lot of crunch time offense is probably going to come down to your best ball handler mm-hmm. because of the fact that you just can't get as many shots into a guy in the post as you would want. But use Pascal as a screener then. Yeah. Because then at least he has a little more... But what make- does Pascal do as a screener? Well, he he makes no, no the offense, defense like- make a tougher decision, right? Like we see okay. a lot when Pascal's a screener, he gets a mismatch. And even if you don't want to run your crunch time offense through the post, like getting a switch means there's a mismatch somewhere else. And I don't think defenses react to... React... You could tell us about so to say Jakob Pertle. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, like there's, they're not going to react to that mm-hmm. in the same way that they would someone who is also a, a sw- like a threat against the switch. I agree with that, right? But now you have Pascal switch. Now you got a mismatch. Now you got to seal the mismatch. Now you got to get the ball into the post to Pascal in the mismatch. Got to see if he draws a double team or not, whether he makes a decision to go or not, and then kick it back out to the perimeter if you need to. It just takes a lot of time. And a lot of times in crunch time, you only have like a limited amount of time. That's not to say there's not improvements. No, or but ways you eat five, it, six but. seconds off the clock looking for that mismatch initially. Right? Yeah. So I get it. Like this is why crunch time offense around the NBA is so, st- I mean, star driven because you want your stars to take a big totally, play. But yeah. yeah, a guy who can create the situation for themselves off is going the to have more. From the top, yeah. you turn over, you, you cut off the chance of a turnover for the most yeah. part. Like, I mean, that think is back just to the Dwayne how... Casey era Raptors where like people would get really, really mad that any crunch time scenario was DeMar Isobal, but the turnover rate on DeMar isolations was like 0%. Mm-hmm. And that was part of their calculation in those situations. Yeah. Um, so yeah, anyway, well, we'll it'll be fun to track how this all, how this all shakes out. Yeah. You know what? It's, it's, for the next five weeks. What's also fun is we have a new team to talk about, which is, uh, you know, it's given us new material. So we're going to take a quick break. I've been your host, Willow. You've been listening to The Raptors Show on the Sports Radio Network. When we come back, let's look at the bigger picture of how the team is constructed currently. Breaking down the top stories in the NHL every day. The Jeff Merrick Show. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. I'm your host, Wayne Lou. Big shouts to producer Derek Rendeo for reminding me that we are back. So uh, I'm here with uh, Blake Murphy. Yeah, I was talking to you uh, off air, not realizing we were back. Oops. It's all good. It's been two weeks after. uh, uh, It's been, I guess, a two-week break from doing this specific show. So there's going to be some uh, awkwardness. Anyway, um, yeah, what do you want to talk about? So the bigger picture, um, the Raptors are... Look, the roster currently right now obviously is not static there no. could be some big changes we already seen the first domino fall with og obviously the speculation is is pascal next we'll get to that conversation with mark stein our nba insider um and we'll see what he says about the whole situation but you know when you look at the bigger picture of which direction this team is trying to move and what they're trying to build like what is your impression of this group can they even keep this group together currently as is for example i mean can yes uh there is can like, without paying a luxury tax. Then. Yeah, there, there's a okay. way to make it work. So, um, you know, with the cap rising as it has, it gives them a little bit of flexibility here. So at sportsnet.ca the other day, I ran the numbers on kind of what does the offseason look like if you keep Pascal? What does the offseason look like if you don't keep Pascal? And it's this is more about opportunity cost than it is you can't do it. So if you were to re-sign Pascal Siakam in the offseason and you were to re-sign Emmanuel quickly to roughly the salary we anticipate him getting, maybe something that averages, you know, $24, $25 million a year um, and starts at, you know, $22, $23 million with escalating, you can make that work even with the pieces that you still have on the team. Mm -hmm. As currently constructed, that would leave you a little thin on how you're rounding out the roster. You have that second round pick now. You would probably not use the full mid-level exception because that would probably push you uh, into the tax. You'd probably be careful with that. You'd have to hit on some minimums, things like that. But 
you have a couple guys who have mid-size salaries that extend into next year. So let's say there's a scenario at the trade deadline or in the summer where Dennis Schroeder is has has a market, mm-hmm. and obviously Darko really likes him. We really like Dennis, but there are a lot of teams in basketball who could use a good backup point guard for a playoff push. So maybe there's a market for him. Maybe there's a market for Chris Boucher who uh, fits as an energy big on a lot of teams around the league and, and makes about 11, 12 million. Those kind of things can open up even more flexibility. Suddenly you have the mid-level exception available to you or, or a little extra wiggle room in trade. That flexibility is, I think, the key term the Raptors have tried to build with this last little while. And, you know, I'm guilty of, of having grown impatient with it at times. It feels like the lack of picking a direction is because they don't know or, or they can't decide. And maybe there's some element of that. But they have also, I think, looked at things where coming into the season, yes, they had seven pending free agents, including three key ones. They also had less long-term money committed than just about any team in the league. Mm. And look, okay. flexibility has an expiry date. Like it it becomes less and less valuable the closer you are to a decision point like, hey, are we going to trade Fred? Or are we going to re-sign him? Or is he going to walk for nothing? Uh-huh. And I think that's part of what you ran into with OG here is you had a long runway to figure it out. And OG's probably a bigger threat to leave for nothing in unrestricted free agency or return not very much in sign and trade than Pascal is. And that's why he's the first domino to fall, had a good market. So flexibility is a nice thing to be building with. Mm. But, you know, I said, I said, Can you this, build on flexibility. Though? Right. This is the thing is, and, and I, and if you keep bumping that flexibility down the line, it yeah. becomes less and less valuable because OG's suddenly right. a UFA that teams have to worry about resigning. Pascal is suddenly, you know, a potential UFA right. and you're out of time to extend him now. So I, I said this to Dan Devine earlier well, when no, I hold do, on. opposing teams are out of time to sign him to a four year extension. The yes. Raptors still have time. Yes. yes. The Raptors have until June 30th, yeah. which is effectively July 1st. Like if you have the guy, um, but yes, he couldn't be extended for six months. If you trade him now. Um, yeah. And if you extend him now, you can't trade him for six months, vice versa. Yeah. So, um, yeah. but the thing with flexibility, and this is how I worded it to Dan Devine earlier doing his podcast is like, when you get offensive rebound, the shot clock only resets to 14, not 24. And that's okay. how I kind of feel about like rolling flexibility over and over and pushing it down the line. So I think it's important that they made the OG move. They got two pieces that are very clearly a multi-year part of the plan here. If they were to trade Pascal Siakam, I think that is a similar thing that they would be trying to do. They would probably think they would love to get a pick back in the deal because they're still at a pick right. deficit for the future. But clearly but, they want players in over picks. Yeah, because Scotty's yeah. ready to... Be a really good player right now. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and it makes more sense. You know, you don't want to ask him to wait four or five years for you to identify and develop those players. Um, so I think the flexibility has been a, a key thing for them moving forward. But they are hitting a point now where, yeah, all these guys can walk at the end of the season. And on one side, if you let everyone walk, mm-hmm. so you let Pascal go or you trade him and don't bring salary back. If you let Gary Trent go or trade him and don't bring salary back, et cetera, you could have like $37 million in cap space this offseason. Mm. Now, to the joke you made to me off air, that could, you could <laughs> you, you could get in the mix Pascal for Pascal Siakam or OG and Anobi at yeah. the top of the free agent yeah, market. Um, yeah. And then, like, if you could find, you know, say you needed the cap space and traded Dennis or, or Chris or whatever, like, mm-hmm. you could find your way to even more cap space. That's the decision they have to make right now. I mean, are you, that's are, not going to be useful for the Raptors. Let's no. be honest. We never sign anybody right. of any note so in free agency. No have, offense. So Masai has been here for 10 years now. Yeah. They have operated with cap space one time. They have yeah. every single time, except for one, decided, hey, it makes more sense for us to stay above the cap, mm-hmm. keep the salaries for trade, use yeah, the yeah. mid-level exception. Because you don't get the mid-level exception if you dip into cap space either. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they have made that decision 
nine out of ten times. Yeah, and the which one time they was didn't. the cap explosion where they got Damari Carroll, Corey Joseph, and Bismack Biombo. Hey, listen, two of the three were pretty good signings. Uh, just not the marquee one, unfortunately, yeah. due to injuries. Um, but, yeah. So, look, I think that's what they've been thinking up to this point, that the flex... Having guys who the future is uncertain on, to them, at least for a little bit, was a feature, not a bug, because it means you're not yeah. committed, you're you're agile and things like that. But as you head toward a July 1st where all of these guys, OG, Pascal, Gary, um, Precious and Malachi even, all those guys headed for free agency, you're you're coming up to not the expiration date of that, of the value of that flexibility, because you could roll Pascal over. You could extend him and then th- rethink about it in the offseason. More flexibility. But, yeah, the shot clock's only reset to 14, not 24. No, this is good. The Raptors are like the that one boyfriend who is in a long-term relationship but is not engaged or or more married. Uh, there's just a lot of flexibility. Uh, I might be speaking from experience. Commitment issues or, <laughs> no, or what are no. we talking about here? That's a different conversation that we're not going to have here. Um, Man, he comes back from a, a <laughs> couple days in Montreal. And I guess no, you, had a, you had a chat. You no. had a chat in Montreal. Okay. Nothing changed. So look, nothing changed we're going to talk a ton yeah, about yeah. this stuff between now and, and February. So let me ask you, uh-huh. Pascal specifically, yeah. have you been able to gather? I, I know you've kind of been on the pulse of this one. What is your read on what the OG trade means with respect to Pascal, if anything? I don't think it's tangibly changed the situation. Um, I think that, you know, the reports are around it are that the Raptors are going to give this like another five weeks, essentially, until the trade deadline to see how it all gels. The last thing you want to see is like this team is like, I don't know, let's say, for example, on like a 10-game win streak, which is most likely not going to happen. This guy's trying to really run 2013 (laughs) back on the 10-year anniversary. Darko's going to run out of money, okay? He's going to have to buy a restaurant to to, to fulfill all these dinner recommendations. Um, But like, yeah, I mean, you got to see how this group currently works. If there's a real spark that really goes then maybe there's a chance to keep it together. But I also think that, like, the fact that they've been dragging their feet on this thing for the longest time is suggestive to me that either, A, there's an ongoing negotiation and that the two sides want to, you know, figure out something, but they're not, like, clearly on the exact same page because otherwise it'd be already done. Um, Either it's all negotiation or the Raptors truly do want to move forward. And, like, clearly this team hasn't really done anything to really warrant keeping it all together, at least through the first 30-ish games or so. Um, so you can give yourself the next extra month to see. I don't think that the trade will happen like imminently, but at the same time, like, yeah, I mean, I I would still probably put my money on a trade possibly happening in this case. Okay. So Scotty Barnes is obviously the piece that's going to stay for the longest term. For sure. Even if he were to get negative about the situation, everyone signs the rookie skill extension. If it's at the max level, everyone signs it. And then you, you figure it out later if the situation uh, is not one that you want to be in. So that's not a problem. I think we can pretty safely say you acquire Emmanuel quickly in this deal because you think he's a part of the future and you're comfortable with what you expect the restricted free agency price to be. By the way, Emmanuel quickly um, shares an agent with guys that the Raptors have dealt with a lot in the past. Um, same agent as Precious Achua. Mm-hmm. So he would have had the same kind of conversations. Okay. Um, so they would have some certainty there. Who of the players remaining would you say is the like the next long-term that you would be mm-hmm. comfortable saying, yeah, yeah. they're going to be here a while. It's probably got to be quickly. Um, even though he doesn't have a contract in Sorry, place. Sorry, after just quickly. Oh, after so quickly? So I'm assuming, so I, don't think you do th- I don't think you do this deal if you don't have a good idea that you're going to be comfortable re-signing quickly. And, and if he walks in, in restricted free agency and you don't match, mm-hmm. you you misplayed this hand a little bit. Exactly. Um, so most likely it's probably going to be RJ. I'm not going to lie to you. Like uh, he's He's under contract. He's clearly... Very happy to be here. I think the Raptors 
probably have some level of belief in him. I know there was that, like, you know, Zach Lowe kind of casually mentioned that he was talking to some executives about this trade and some executives had even used the idea of toxic asset to speak up to RJ's contract. Um, I mean, I don't think that's true at all, to be honest, but fine. Like, I, I, I just think that the Raptors clearly have a decent enough idea and opinion of RJ. Like, it's not a throw-in that RJ's in this deal. Like, they purposely went out to get him. I think he's probably here long-term. I think Pascal can fit here long-term. I mean, the, the whole idea of him not fitting with Scotty, like, that, that idea has kind of gone out the window. At least to me, like this whole season has shown that those two guys can play well together. The rest of the pieces around them haven't fit. That's why they've made one of these trades to get more pieces around them and see if there's a different fit. But to me, that those two work together. But then again, the front office is still not committed to this extension. You know what I mean? Like you are really running this thing down. Unless you are, wire, unless you, you are know? committed and you're just like, like but it really on, this is would be a really long negotiation if it was a negotiation. Yeah, and like there aren't there's only so much of a band that you're negotiating. Like even if they don't want to give Pascal the max, they're no, not the offering the they're not offering him 20 million. It's like then I, there's no negotiation. Yeah, yeah, and you and I have discussed like we think it's probably about term where if it's a shorter yes. term deal, yeah. you can have the max. If it's longer term, we got to get you below the max. Yeah. I, it, think I mean, that's and no one It'd be kind of annoying by the way if all this time it was just a leverage play to eventually get the deal that the front office wants to get. Because, I mean, it's just annoying to everyone involved almost at the same point. But Jakob, Grady, Gary, I think those are the other only other options, really. Like, there's not that many pieces here that are like, you know for sure are going to be on this roster next season even. Yeah. Or like two seasons from now. Grady's got the most stability on the 905 roster. <laughs> he, I mean, he's going to be look, there. Listen, Grady's got to fit. And honestly, if Grady gets to the level that the Raptors think he is at, um, or that he should be at, then he would fit because his skill set fits. They're nicely. back in action tomorrow, by the way. So okay, we'll, we'll get go. to see him we'll against Kobe Bufkin. About, oh, oh wow, I'm going to be tuning into that. But anyway, we're going to take a quick break. Been your host Will. You've been listening to the Raptors Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. When we come back, let's call Mark Stein. Big guests and bigger opinions on everything happening in Leafsland. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Raptors Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. I'm your host, Wayne Blue. And for segment three, this NBA Insider is presented by Coors Light. Go from full time to game time. Coors Light made to chill. Uh, Happy New Year to Mark Stein, who was joining us once again. Um, Mark, how was your how was your New Year's? I, I mean, I'm assuming you probably spent New Year's Eve at a NBA game. This is like the tradition for every reporter, generally speaking. I was not at a game, but certainly watching games and writing, and uh, you know that is. The NBA calendar is unique unto itself, but happy new year to the Raptors show. Honored to be with you guys. Yeah. New year, uh, same, same job, same routine. Um, okay. Let's, uh, let's get straight into it because the Raptors did make a trade, um, you know, just before the new year with OJ and going to the New York Knicks. In addition with uh, precious Achua, Malachi Flynn Raptors get back Emmanuel quickly, RJ Barrett. And uh, what is pretty much guaranteed to be the 31st pick, uh, in this upcoming draft, um, you had some great reporting around this, and I wanted to get your thoughts on sort of just like how did this deal sort of come together, the timeline of this deal, and you know how unlikely is it the fact that the Raptors ended up trading with a team that is mm-hmm. you know suing the Raptors? Yeah, that's certainly I think a sidebar element that 
you know, got everybody's attention because it is, you know, certainly amusing to say the least that, you know, the Knicks are suing the Raptors, but also couldn't resist doing a trade with them. But look, I think it's been known that they've had interest in OG Ananobi for some time. And, you know, the trade pieces, I think, certainly snap together well for both sides. I mean, both teams are addressing major needs that they have. OG Ananobi is already off to a very promising start as a Nick. He looks like he is going to be a good fit there. And I don't think I need to give you guys a long speech about the Raptors needing more creativity and offensive thrust from the backcourt, which I think quickly is certainly capable of giving them. But I I know you guys want to talk about Pascal before we even get to that. I want to ask you guys a question. Mm. Are you guys happy? Are you happy? Almost never, but uh, I, I think uh, if you if you acknowledge that OG was a potential flight risk in the offseason, I think you you made a pretty good deal here if you were resigned to trading OG Ananobi rather than keeping him around. I'm very high on Emmanuel quickly uh, long term, and I think you know his RFA price is obviously going to be cheaper than than OG's UFA price. So even with the RJ Barrett contract in there, I, I'm pretty content with it. Will. Yeah, the Raptors just needed to do something. Um, they needed to find a guard for the future, and I think quickly has a good chance to do that. Um, I think RJ coming home is not an insignificant piece of this. Clearly, he's a guy who really wants to be here. And again, it seemed like OG was on his way out because as people have pointed this out many times now, but one of OG's agents is <laughs> is Sam Rose, who is the son of Leon Rose, who runs the New York Knicks. And it's, uh, it's actually a question I want to get to a little bit later on this interview with you, Mark, in terms of just how much action on the NBA is dictated not just by the front office, by the players, but by the agencies uh, behind the scenes. But I, I guess my question to you on the subject of OG right now is just, you know, OG's obviously been a player that teams have been interested in quite a while. And I'm wondering in terms of the other offers that you have maybe have heard in terms of speculation of other teams potentially offering OG, I wanted to know, like, you know, A, what some of those offers were, um, and also B, like, how does this one compare to those other offers, right? Because there is an opportunity cost in choosing any decision that you make. Well, look, I think if we rewind a year, all the talk around OG and Anobi was it was going to take first-round draft picks, and it was going to take multiple first-round draft picks for the Raptors to part with him. And I think a, a big reason why is because a year ago at this time, I just don't think the Raptors really wanted to trade OG Ananobi. But after last season's trade deadline, when the Raptors considered all manner of potential moves and ended up only adding to the core by bringing back Pirtle and not trading Siakam, not trading Ananobi, not trading Van Vliet, not trading Gary Trent Jr. After all of those guys stayed put at the deadline and then Fred left in free agency and after a very underwhelming disappointing, you know, underwhelming is too nice. The Raptors oh, yeah. are on the list of most disappointing teams of the season to this point. And so I think that changed the calculus for Toronto. And with all of the draft experts around the league repeatedly saying that this is not going to be a good draft, you know, they, that I think gives Toronto even more impetus to say, you know what, let's focus on young players who are already in the league with upside who we can acquire and, Obviously, what RJ twenty three quickly twenty four, and both recent first rounders. So, you know that's 
you know, I, I think the Raptors can justify the move from that perspective. But look, the Knicks are obviously thrilled that, yes, they gave up the, the Detroit pick, which is going to be 31. And it's, you know, you can liken it to a late first, but the Knicks still have eight of their own first rounders and Evan Fournier's very team fan, team friendly contract. They still have that to go out and make subsequent deals. And look, I think it's, you know, there was a surprise element for sure, because, you know, I think in past visits with you guys, I've talked about Chicago, Utah, Atlanta, and Toronto. Those were really the four teams that the rest of the league was looking at as, yes, I think we can count on these teams to be sellers to some degree. And that was certainly underlined in kind of the talk at the G league showcase in Orlando. But the fact that Toronto made the deal, the first deal out of that foursome, I think was a surprise and, you know, suggests that they're probably not finished. So, yeah, that that's where we were going to head next is, you know, what is, you know, that is the reaction of the league coming out of the G league showcase before this happens. What are the reverberations now? And look, I, I would hear a case that, well, this was a basketball trade. You turn one guy into two, a pending UFA into guys with more control, someone who maybe fits the core a little bit better and quickly. I could see all those things, but I still do hear what you're saying. And it's like, hey, these guys are headed for UFA. You had to pick a lane, and this is the first step. Um, what has the sense around the league been? Because we have, you know, we've kicked around. Does this mean things fit better around Pascal Siakam? And unless it's a really good offer, you don't take it? Or is this part one of a, a multi-part thing. So Mark, what, what has your read been on that or, or what are teams expecting? And, and I guess let's keep it specifically focused on Pascal Siakam because I don't think, you know, Gary Trent or, or Chris Boucher moves or, or things of that caliber are really changing the long-term opinion league-wide of what the Raptors are doing here. So um, on the Siakam front, what, what has the, what has the reading of those tea leaves been league-wide? Well, I think if you polled front offices, if you had the ability to do that, more front offices than not would say they expect Pascal Siakam to be traded. However, as similar as the situations look, his Siakam situation and Ananobi's situation, you know, Professor Liu mentioned it. You know, Sam Rose is one of Ananobi's agents. So the Knicks, even though OG Ananobi is heading for free agency in the summer, the Knicks, you know they have a very clear idea already on what it would take to re-sign him. And the fact that the Knicks were known to be a team that OG Ananobi would have had great interest in in free agency, that certainly helped bring the Raptors to the table to do this deal as well. To you know, Both of these teams kind of were you know, pursuing the same goal in that sense. And you know, the Knicks aren't nobody looks at the Knicks and says, Oh my God, they are facing so much risk here. They've, you know, to give up quickly a player who had many fans around the league and who certainly has generated trade interest from other teams beyond Toronto. The Knicks aren't giving him up if they're not pretty confident that they're going to be able to resign OG Ananobi. Whereas the Pascal Siakam situation, to me, it's completely different. He does not have a no trade clause. And, you know, nothing is better than a no-trade clause. But Bradley Beal is the only guy in the league who has a full no-trade clause. But being able to go to free agency like Pascal Siakam can, that is a pretty powerful status to, to possess in his case. 
And any team that trades for him has to be sure if they're giving up quality trade assets to the Raptors that they can re-sign Pascal Siakam because now that we've passed December 30th, he can still do a max extension with the Raptors. But if he got traded tomorrow or in a month or on February 8th before the deadline, his new team can only offer him a two-year extension. And if you're that close to free agency, why would Pascal Siakam want to do a two-year deal? If you're only a few months away from free agency anyway, naturally there would be great appeal to playing out this final season and going to free agency and giving yourself all the optionality. So that there is, on one hand, there is this great expectation that Siakam is going to be traded. And then on the other hand, there is a lot of questioning of what kind of offer can Toronto really command when free agency looms? That team, whoever it is that decides to make a legitimate trade offer for Pascal Siakam, they have to be sure they can keep him or else they're giving away assets for a rental. Yeah, and again, I think the messaging from Pascal has been clear that he wants to stay with Toronto. Um, and it's a little bit difficult for him to, I guess, commit to any other situations. But, you know, who knows? Uh, maybe there are, I'm sure there are other uh, interested um, teams that, you know, could have some mutual interest in this case. We don't really know exactly what those are, unless, Mark, you want to tell us. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I, well, I, want... I don't think the list, I don't think the list, the list that we're currently working from, I don't think is hugely surprising. Obviously, the Hawks mm -hmm. were, you know, the Hawks expressed, what was regarded last summer as the most serious trade interest in Pascal Siakam. Sacramento is mentioned all the time, but the Kings have been pretty adamant that they're not including Keegan Murray in those discussions. So is there really a trade to be made with, be, between those two teams? The Pacers are also presumed to still be interested in Pascal Siakam, but you know they were also interested in OG Ananobi and, the Pacers, are they actually looking for a more traditional wing? I think there is still some question there. You know, in the city where I live, the Mavericks have been mentioned as a potential Pascal Siakam suitor. I've checked that myself. Have the Mavericks registered exploratory interest in Pascal Siakam? Yes, but it was stressed to me that their interest has been overstated. And I, at this point where we stand on, what, January 3rd, I don't see the Mavericks at the front of the line trying to chase them. I, I've heard Detroit and Memphis could, underline could, mm -hmm. potentially emerge as suitors down the road. But also I would say it's still early. I mean, we still have six weeks to go, and the Raptors have made one massive trade. So, I mean, I'm sure they want to work in their new acquisitions and focus on that in the short term. But there is, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is there still is time for a market to materialize. Like, I don't think we have today a tremendously firm handle on what the market might be. So one of the teams that weren't mentioned there, Mark, and this is not a Pascal Siakam question. This is a pivot to a general question. Uh, the team that you had number two in your latest power rankings, a team that beat the Boston Celtics last night and a team that has more assets in draft capital than you could possibly know what to do with the Oklahoma city thunder look like one of the very best teams in basketball. And you can make a case for patience and building this all out, getting a playoff run to see what best fits with Shea and J dub and Chad and things like that. 
But you could also make a case that, hey, you only get so many kicks at the can, and why not optimize this window? Have you got a sense yet of if the Thunder might be super patient, modest buyers, if they might surprise us here a little bit over these next five weeks? The case I would make, Mr. Murphy, is that no team on the NBA map is listening less to the cases that we might make on a show like this than the Oklahoma City Thunder. (laughs) They are tuning us out. They do not care. They do not listen. You know, one of the things I wrote about in my Monday piece that I think now that I think about this is what I was doing on New Year's Eve. I think I was Hmm. assembling the story that you guys keep asking me about. But, you know, one of the things I, I wrote about in the piece was how Masai moves to his own clock, no matter what the criticism is, no matter what the impatience is that is mounting around him, you know, He's always done it this way, going back to the Carmelo Anthony trade more than a decade ago in Denver. And I think Sam Presti is, you know, if not equally, maybe even more so, he's going to do this on his clock. They're not going to rush. And you know, the Thunder have been so good, especially lately, to go into Denver and win twice. The throttle Minnesota at home with, you know, it wasn't like it wasn't like the Wolves were on the second night of a back-to-back, and then to beat Boston, which hasn't lost a home game. They come to Oklahoma City. It's it's a game that was, you know, of, of great interest. You know, I I came out with power rankings about an hour before tip-off, and Boston and OKC are at the top of my list. So it, you know, we unexpectedly got this amazing showdown, and that naturally sparked a ton of conversation about. What should the Thunder do? They're so good. Maybe they should go all in. And I would never, you know, I wouldn't rule anything out because it is the NBA. And, you know, the Thunder, when they move, they do tend to move very decisively. But, I, you know, as far as listening to the noise or how the chatter could impact them, I don't think it does at all. And they've, they've really been patient with the way they've approached assembling this team and just my instinct, you know, having observed that team for a long time, just I, I, I would, I think the safe expectation is that they would continue to be patient because this team, you know, as, as, as great as they have looked so far through the first half of the season and SGA is obviously an MVP contender because of how well this team has played. We still haven't seen them really in a playoff situation. Do they really know what they have yet after basically 40 games of top level regular season play. So just my instinct is I don't expect them to rush out now and try to make some sort of win now trade. It'll be interesting because I am also very curious to see how this group works in a playoff setting because they are really young and um, it's kind of unprecedented to see um, if they do become contenders to jump straight from like not even being in playoff series to contending. It's like, it's huge. Yeah. It, it might help their evaluation before they before they decide to yeah. really go all in to see these guys in that sure. playoff setting and then kind of be able to have a better handle of what do we really need, what are the pieces missing to really cement ourselves as a team that can compete for a championship. They might need that playoff data to make that decision. Poor Kenrich Williams, 29 years old, and he's like a decade older than everyone else on the <laughs> roster with him. Um, well, yeah. did you want to go back to the agency, uh, the I agency thing? Yeah, Mark, I wanted to get you out on this because obviously the, the the Knicks are clearly like a very CAA-friendly 
uh, operation. Uh, the Lakers are obviously a very clutch sports friendly operation. And it got me thinking about sort of just like, you know, you've covered this league for you know a long time now. And can you sort of explain sort of behind the scenes in terms of just like how much agents, how much are player movements dictated based on the agencies versus like player movement dictated based on the players themselves or even dictated based on the teams themselves? Because obviously on the team release, it just says the Knicks have traded uh, Emmanuel Cook and RJ Baird to Toronto and that the Raptors have traded OG and, and Precious and Malachi to uh, New York. But clearly, there it, there has to be some level behind the scenes to sort of like push these specific players to these different markets. I honestly am not sure that it's really changed. This is my 31st season, and I think it's always been this way to some degree. But I think it's just as one of the offshoots of the social media era. And, you know, one of the big changes in the league, that one of the big impacts that social media has had is, Everything gets reported incrementally, and there is a level of celebrity status with agents now. And I just think there's a greater awareness of who represents who. And so I think maybe as the basketball public, we're more hyper-focused on it. But agents have always been involved in deals behind the scenes, and there have always been back-channel discussions as long as I've been doing this. And I actually think sometimes it's overstated that, you know, hmm. like the agent can build the agents can, can an agent build the whole roster exactly the way they want? I don't think so. But in the Knicks case, you know, look, it's their two lead decision makers were former agents. So I think it's more pronounced in that case, because yeah. obviously everybody knows Leon Rose was a CAA forever. And so any time that the Knicks acquire a player from CAA's roster, that's naturally going to be something that's that talked about a ton. But you know, again, I, I'm not. I'm just. I'm not convinced that it is drastically different than it was ten or even fifteen or even twenty years ago. But we just we know a lot more than we used to. So I shouldn't read into anything that the, the Raptors now have four of Bill Duffy's clients. With R.J. Barrett. Bill uh, Duffy has all the clients. So man, his, Dick, his, uh, McDaniel, his roster Barnes. page is bangers only. No, I mean, for sure. I mean, I'll, I'll do respect. Um, you know, Luca heading the top of your list is pretty sick. But, like, no, the Raptors do have four Bill Duffy clients. Um, Mark, should I read into this, or is this just a coincidence? If I tell you not to, you're going to read into it anyway. So, I mean, that's <laughs> – and, and just, 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 just the fact that, again, we – you know, again, ten, maybe, maybe 10 years ago it was online. But – 15 years ago, would would agent affiliations even be online to the degree that they are now? Whereas now That's we true. know every single player's representation. I think if I think if we go to a real GM, yeah, it's like a literal list. You can just player, look at it. Yeah. Any player's bio has has their agent. You know, so. Um, but did Bill Duffy sit in some uh, secret room and plot his way to having four clients on the Raptors? You know. Yeah, my 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 instinct is no. All right. Well, Mark, I appreciate your perspective on this, and for all the insight, uh, we'll we'll ask you if Pascal's getting traded to someplace uh, next week when we call <laughs> you again. All right. Probably for the next few weeks until February eighth, whichever comes whichever comes first, February February eighth or the trade. Yeah. Well, it's either that or I ask you about City potentially uh, overtaking Liverpool for the the Premier League title, but. You know, that's that's less exciting to our 20, viewers. 
2024, the year you're going to Anfield? Uh, you know what? Probably not, but... <laughs> That's a we'll deflating we'll, answer. We'll see. I don't know. Liverpool, maybe they'll play like a U.S. tour and I'll go see them there or something, you know? 2024 is the year that I get to come back to Toronto. I have not been to Toronto since the pandemic. Man, I miss it. Yeah. I miss it. I got to I gotta get there. Mark, if, if you like persistent light rain for five straight days. Uh, while the, it's while straight it's, up Vancouver here this winter. Yeah, it's been very mild this, light this, rain, this winter. Light rain, heavy, heavy snow, doesn't bother me. We haven't had one people snowfall. Still talk about, people still talk about the All-Star game. Oh. I recently did a podcast with Chris Haynes, and he went on and on about how it was the coldest day of his life. I loved every second of All-Star weekend in Toronto, so I don't care how cold it was. Here's the thing. That Somehow, All-Star weekend was so cold. It was Kobe's last All-Star weekend. That was cool. It was an incredible three-point contest with Steph Clay and Devin Booker. And then it was, like, arguably the greatest dunk contest since Vince in 2000 with Zach Levine and Aaron Gordon. So, hey, listen, it was as long as you got inside the building, it was the place to be. But I uh, appreciate you, Mark Stein. Somebody, somebody, somebody took me to Soto Soto for the first time nice. on that weekend. I, I, I had a big weekend, man. I'm telling you. There you go. All right. That NBA Insider was presented by Coors Light. Again. Go from full-time to game-time. Coors Light meant to chill. Mark Stein, what a guy, man. He really loves Toronto. Yeah. Yeah, let's yeah, get not? him back out here. It would be not? nice to do one of these in suit. I can't imagine what reason he'd have to come here before the trade deadline. Ah, it's all um, good. Like maybe we got to target early next year or something like that. You but think Mark's be... going to show up in the Coors Light fleece? Yeah, <laughs> he might have to. <laughs> maybe all three of us will wear it. Yeah. Nice. yeah. Um, by the way, the fu- uh, just I will share mm. a funny side of the agent thing. Yeah, okay, go ahead. So at the other end of things, there is Bill Duffy and, and Leon Rose and guys and sure, Rich yeah, Paul. Yeah. There are also the agents that only have like three or four clients and some of them are in the G League and they're grinding to get to an NBA spot. And Those are the guys that call you. They are the guys that call you, the guys that text you and (laughs) see your tweets and stuff like that. But there's also an element of like, and Uh and obviously the the client comes first. The agent doesn't, the agent is never going to do anything that isn't the best for the client. But you do run into funny situations sometimes where guy that only has me four or five clients and two of them are G League up and down guys and one guy's already on a roster. Mm. Do you really want two clients on the same roster when there might only be one roster spot for the two of those guys? Like imagine you sure. have Blake Murphy and Will Lou mm. as your clients. So neither of us are making a roster, but let's play a scenario where we do. <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, like two it. of us in one spot fighting for the 15th roster spot mm-hmm. or each of us in two different spots fighting for the 15th roster spot. Yeah. Now there's a chance in that scenario where you make zero, but there's also a chance you get both of your guys on NBA rosters, do you really want them competing against each other? So this is the oh, spectrum. The this game the theoryification of, uh, yeah. of of being an agent. Yeah, yeah for every Rich agent. Paul, there are like five. Yeah. I'm not going to name names because I don't want to say someone's a, a smaller agent. But um, yeah, yeah, it's like, Their names like are. G League players have agents <laughs> too. And it's, it's funny how opposite that stuff works. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to read a book that's uh, Rich Paul, Poor Paul. Uh, but okay, we're going to take our last break. Come uh, on. Been your host, Willow. You've been listening to The Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL. The J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Raptors show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. I'm your host, Wim Lou, joined once again for segment four by Blake Murphy, co-host. Uh, we will be joined shortly 
by Steve Jones uh, of the Dunker Spot uh, and also a former assistant coach slash video coordinator. It was great when Steve joined us like two weeks ago. Uh, and he kind of like way longer than two weeks ago. That was, that was, that was more than two weeks ago. Yeah, okay, maybe two a month weeks ago. ago was like Christmas, basically. I, I, I guess so. Okay, maybe a month back. And, and he really just brought us, you know, like much more, I guess, down to earth, like, you know, stop panicking. You know, we could do this, this and this. Just appreciate the coach's perspective. So once we get him on, we'll we'll we'll, we'll chat with Steve about just what he's seen out of the new team. Um, by the way, if you don't follow him on Twitter, you better because you will get really in depth breakdowns of the games that he's watching. Shows you lots of little clips, and um, yeah, it's just good to just good to be in the know. So yeah, follow Steve Jones. I think it's Steve Jones twenty yep. on, on Twitter. But uh, yeah, Blake, how you doing, man? You alright? Yeah, I'm good, man. A little low energy after. Uh... Yeah, I don't know. People don't need to know why. Yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm good, man. It's uh, how, was, how was yesterday in the studio by yourself? It's weird being on that side, man. It's like like the Raptors are have so many lefties now that watching pregame warmups. I was really mm. disoriented the other okay. day. Three left-handed players on the same roster, and that's that, how I know you're a baseball guy, Blake. You, yeah, you, you track a hand. Yeah, South you, love, you Darko, you you love hands. Honestly, yeah. it sticks out to me with RJ so much though, because remember the one clutch bucket he had against the Raptors, where he's sprint like kind of sprinting full court off yep. the backcourt inbound, and then the team plays him as if he's going to go right, Mm -hmm. but he's left-handed. So he has the lane because he's left-handed. So it's always like, it's the first That's called not knowing your personnel. That will drive a coach absolutely crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And this is like, lefties are, for whatever reason, pretty rare in the NBA. Um, But the Raptors have three of them with Thad and Jonte Porter. So um, yeah, that's how how I felt being in that seat yesterday. Everything's reoriented. Um, Things are not, uh, I have some OCD stuff and mm. this side is like everything lines up perfectly symmetrical. It does not on that side. So uh, come Blue Jays talk plus season, I'm going to have to make some alterations over there. Mm. But uh, yeah, we're mostly good, man. We're mostly good. Uh, thank goodness Steve Jones Jr. is on the line. Yeah. <laughs> we're pivoting away from uh, left-hand, right-hand talk now. I mean, Steve, how you doing, man? You all right? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm feeling good, feeling great. Uh, I guess we're going to keep it a little easy on Jalen Brown after the conversation I just heard, right? Oh, well, I mean, he might be the opposite of R.J. Barrett. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do want to ask you, though, since since it came up, like you've been in these video rooms, you've been in those scout sessions and stuff. Lefties are not that common. How hard do do teams like hit that on scout? Like, hey, remember he's lefty. Remember he's lefty. Obviously, m- maybe a guy like R.J.'s level, he's an everyday starter for five years. Everyone just knows. Yeah. But like, is it something that has to be hammered home and reminded to guys because they aren't all that common and you are going to defend them a little differently? Uh, it's something you probably have to remind more in game. Okay. To where guys will just kind of naturally just do their defensive rotation or their closeouts or their slides and forget. Oh yeah, I can. I that's his primary hand. So I'm so used to just being like, nah, we'll force it this way. It's like, oh no, yeah, I want no middle, but he's driving left now, and <laughs> now that's just an open baseline drive. And what have I done? So it's more like, hey, just remember, like the, he wants to go left, so keep a head up. Yeah. I, hopefully you don't have to remind most players about this. I mean, just because, like, yeah, I mean, it is, like, the number one thing that people should know about certain players. But what but if it's, like, like a rookie bench battle, score or something yeah. like that? Like, I don't know. You, you, Not everyone's going to remember everything second to second. I don't yeah, know. That's fair. Like, listen, uh, coaching does not seem like an easy job. Um, okay. So, Steve, we, we brought you on because we wanted you to give us your first assessment on sort of how this new version of the Raptors looks with RJ, with Emmanuel Quickly in the starting five now. Um, have you gotten the chance to sort of catch up on their first game against Cleveland and sort of, you know, what are your takeaways of seeing the first game of them in action? 
Well, I appreciate y'all having me back on. I, I believe the last time I was here, there was a very large desire for shooting. Yeah. We now have a manual quickly. So I'm sure once some of the OG tears dried, there was some excitement there. For me, you felt the difference right away with this Raptors unit, just as far as tempo went. Okay. Transition offense felt a lot better. I thought that was hmm. a boost that quickly was going to give Toronto. But even with RJ, having RJ quick, Scotty Barnes, Pascal Siakam, multiple guys who can get it up and go, and now they can flow side to side. And there's a little bit more bite and pop to what uh, Coach Darko and the Raptors have been trying to do as far as their flow goes. I, th- I, felt, I felt like I saw more throw-aheads in that game than I had seen from the Raptors before, but they were just able to get it up and go. There was more variety. There was more versatility. They were just tying together things better. You know, I, I felt like Jakob Pertl came alive again. Uh, almost like, you know, last year when everyone was just switching everything against Toronto, then they get Pirtle and Fred Van Beet's like, oh, I can run pick and roll. This is fun. <laughs> it felt like that to a degree. Um, it's not just on Scotty Mars to pass out and make a play. You got multiple guys who can do it. You can go side to side. You can actually get to drive and kick in theory, which I think should help Toronto's overall flow uh, as the season goes on, as this chemistry develops, because all right, you know, there's a possession. RJ Barrett brings up a transition. Pascal's like, hey, I got you. Let me set a screen real quick. Nothing there, but now we can swing it if we don't have anything. Maybe get it back to Jakob, go to the second side, and we can keep pressure on teams that way. So I think the flow was better. Uh, I think the versatility was better. Obviously, chemistry is going to take some time, but I was I was impressed. When you look at Emmanuel Quickly and R.J. Barrett generally, and we can talk more specifically about Quickly and his potential upside, which is, I think, the core reason the Raptors do this deal. But shorter term, you take two guys out of a New York Knicks system, a Tom Thibodeau system that runs a little ISO heavy. Jalen Brunson and Julius Randle are going to have the ball in their hands and playing one-on-one a fair amount. Now, R.J. still got his usage in there. Emmanuel Quickly still got his usage in those bench units. But they're coming to a Toronto team that is certainly less ISO-reliant, for better or for worse, and whose two top players are hovering around 25% usage rate, not not up near 30. Um, What is going to change for Quickly and Barrett in terms of what's available to them and how maybe they have to tweak their games or or could see more advantages in a Toronto-style system versus the, the Thibodeau Knicks? I think the context and the fit feels better for both of them in Toronto versus New York. Uh, I think when you talk about New York, you think of Emmanuel quickly and what he added to that bench unit. A lot of that pace and tempo was not just because of Hartenstein, but because of him. So he can now insert some of that into Toronto's offense. And he has the benefit of not having to, okay, I have to make every play in pick and roll. He can play off the other guys. He can play off Scotty Pascal, still RJ. I think with RJ, I think I was intrigued when the trade made. I know it was a lot of RJ noise, but one, if there's one place you're going to get the best out of RJ Barrett, probably Toronto. Home kind of does something to you. Mm. Number two, you may lose some of the defense and the spacing, but what you gain with his driving and his experience operating in pick and roll, operating in dribble handoffs, his ability to get paint touches, that's a benefit to me. So what, what popped to me was there's a possession. I think it was the third quarter. R.J. Barrett has a pick and roll, had just come off a stagger. He makes two dribbles, quick skip to the corner. I'm like, wow, that's a quick decision. That's something I've always monitored with R.J. Barrett. Is he going to catch and hold or is he going to catch and go? He makes a quick decision. The ball finds him back quickly, no pun intended, and he lets a three go. I think the mindset of the Toronto offense, uh, as far as ball movement goes, as far as we can all kind of make plays goes, that will help them integrate more, and their skill sets are going to allow 
what Toronto has been trying to do to feel a lot better, in my opinion. Mm. I, I That's the thing for me. It's just like, you know, looking at the Raptors right now, what you're, what you're saying is really crystallizing for me is that there is that second side action now. I think the Raptors... The last couple of years, they just didn't have that. There's just not enough like functional ball handlers well, who bend defenses, who can make a play, attack a closeout, you know, dribble in situations where maybe it's not like entirely open. Like OG is very much like a straight line. I take one hard dribble, I'm gonna get to the basket and probably try to dunk it, but not like off the dribble. Maybe like you know, uh, set a defender up the way RJ can, the way he quickly definitely can. And how many times have yeah. we seen this year where you know you come down in semi transition, pistol action to get into that first mm-hmm. handoff, and then it goes to the second side, and then. I mean, first of all, no advantage is created on the, on the first six, seven, eight seconds of the shot clock. Yeah. And then goes the second side, and, and not to pick on Precious, who's outbound, but I, we all can remember clips where he kind of stands there at the high post just holding the ball up, waiting for something to materialize yeah, as exactly, guys cut yeah. off or, or try to do an action off ball to come into the handoff and stuff. And now you have just a more balance of threats around the floor. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's really nice. And I think offensively, uh, I really enjoyed seeing even just the first impression of it, let alone after Darko and the rest of the team get a chance to practice together. I think defensively I have some questions, especially now that OG's gone. Starting with today, for example, it's like, okay, who's going to guard, let's say, a Desmond Bain. Let's say who's going to guard uh, a John Morant. Later on this road trip, we're going to see what the Clippers, the Lakers, who's going to guard Kawhi. Who's Golden guard State with Steph Curry. like Steph, I mean, yeah, exactly. So there's lots of questions on that front defensively. And at least in game one, Steve, we saw that Darko chose to go with Scotty as the on-ball defender against Donovan Mitchell. Um, do you like Scotty in that role as that go-to like stopper that OG clearly was for the Raptors for the entirety of his career in Toronto? Well, I don't like to be this guy, but I'm going to answer your question by asking a question first. All right, that's all good. How did you guys? How did you guys feel about it? I mean, I I didn't love it. Um, I think I like Scotty. Yeah, I think yeah. Scotty can be good in that situation. But Scotty's been such a good lower third defender this year, working out of the weak corner, helping for blocks, kind of pinching for steals and stuff like that. Um, we've seen them use him in that way. Actually, the last time they played Cleveland was like a, a big talking point because OG turned Donovan Mitchell off for that game, but Garland got going and they left Scotty on Garland instead of going to someone else there. Um, so. This isn't a knock on Scotty's point of attack defense. I just think he is very, very good in kind of that help slash chaos slash free safety role. So I don't love, like tonight, I would rather him on Jaron Jackson than on Desmond Bain and John Morant, for example. But that is my, I, I don't think it's because he can't do it. I think that's my personal preference in, in how you'd use a guy like that. I understand. I think that's fair. I got yelled at by uh, the great Nikias Duncan uh, nice. for pushing back and on being like, hey, I kind of get why Scotty's on Donovan because he didn't like it either. My thing is you're trying to help grow and evolve him as a defender. And while he's really good on the weak side, you do want him to improve uh, as an on-ball defender. Part of that's going to be being able to guard some of these quick shifty guards. That might just be his weakness right now to where he's figured everything out except for these matchups. And you want it to be in a position where maybe he doesn't, he's not always the primary defender, but he can become someone who switches on these guys and you trust it. Mm. I think for me with Scotty, he has the potential to defend the Donovan Mitchells of the world, the Garlands of the world, those quick shifty guards. He's going to have to take these reps to understand how to do his work early. I think one of the problems he had, especially against Donovan Mitchell, was too much space and not using his size and his length. Um, and so you would feel Donovan Mitchell come down and now he has a space. Scotty's not necessarily touching. Scotty's struggling to navigate a screen. Now Donovan's getting loose. Now Scotty's having to chase behind. Help mm-hmm. has to come. Those type of things. 
If he cleans that part of it up, I think a lot of people would feel better about it. Uh, but it's about positioning for him. It's about making sure he can keep the ball in front, using his size. Because sometimes he gets in the stance and he's ready to work. But now that makes him 6'2", as opposed to the height that he is. And so you kind of have to balance, is this the best thing for our team versus will this end up being a great thing for us in the future? Can we lean on this? Um, because if you can't, then it gets complicated. Now, okay, we need a defender. And you don't want to be in that zone. Yeah. I mean, do you think there's any chance RJ has some of that? Against Donovan, against Donovan or in general? Uh, I guess both, really, but probably more in general. Uh, the Donovan thing, I, I've, I've seen too much film. I'm not going to comment. Yeah. <laughs> Second part, <laughs> I do think he has that potential. I think okay. he has the activity uh, that you would want. Um, it's not going to be as pure as OG. Like, you're not I mean, going to have that pure one-on-one -on -one defender. You're not going to have that pure, I can just take the water off, off ball. Mm -hmm. You're not going to have that combination. So it's going to have to be by committee to a degree. Right. Uh, but I think it's, for me, with Toronto's defense, it's less the individual defenders mm -hmm. and more the team defense. Yeah. Well, I team, like they've been having a lot of, they yeah, they've been having a lot of issues, team, like team defense. That's why, like, I like Scotty off the ball because he has been able to make so many plays with the steals, with the blocks, um, and and even help Yaka Pertle in that sense, too. But, Blake, what do you want to say? Yeah, Steve, with respect to that team defense and maybe being, you know, more the collective than what you do at the point of attack, you know, that to me kind of describes Emmanuel quickly, or at least how I understood it in, in New York, where the on-off metrics were crazy consistently. The defense was much better with him on the court. You watch it. He doesn't look bad individually but it's you hear a lot about well he's such a good help and recover guy he's always in the right spots off the ball he's a great communicator um to the fact fred katz told us yesterday that mitchell robinson even had to tell him to shut up sometimes like that's the center's job man let, let me let me handle that um what do you we make the of the problem Don't yeah what do you make of quickly's defense right now and what level he could maybe reach as a point of attack guy uh, I love that Quickly's defense is getting more praise during this trade. I think the weak side rotations y'all talked about have been money for him. He's really developed at that as far as being in early, knowing how to help on the roller, being able to close back out if the ball skipped and keep your defense in order. So he's been great there. The portion I am concerned about is how much on-ball responsibility do you want to put on him? Uh, can he help pressure the ball? Sure. Do teams look to attack him? just by default mm. and what does that evolution look like because if you if you go back to that cleveland game donovan mitchell had his moments where he's like hey iq come here buddy Let, mm. let's let's have a chat let's let's see if i can get you uh, to switch or anything like that so is he going to be a show and recovery guy is he gonna be a switch guy because again it's not necessarily his fault it's just if you're looking at a lineup of that's pascal that's scotty even if they're smaller okay maybe let's just try and attack quickly real quick mm -hmm. see if we can get some out of that yeah well, that'll be interesting, too, by the way. Um, the more I looked into Quickly, too, I, 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 this might be completely off topic. Did you have any concerns about Quickly after last year's playoff run? I mean... Me? Yes. Um, I didn't have any concerns. It was okay. very clear, though, that, like, okay, if the scoring isn't there, yeah. what else does he do for that team? But I think this context okay, okay. will help those kind of days where maybe the shooting goes down. You know what I mean? I think it's yeah, just a yeah, different yeah. role for me. We're like, hey, we need you to score off the bench. I'm not making shots right now. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. That type of beat versus, okay, he just can't do it at that time of year. Okay. Good, good. Yeah, because he was completely out of that rotation by the end of the Miami series. Is If anyone doesn't remember what Will is asking about there, a shot like 35% from the floor 
uh, throughout the playoffs, that Cleveland series and that Miami series ended up uh, heading to the bench there. Um, okay, so I, I want to ask you, Steve, um, you're going to turn the corner a little bit here. It's very relevant to the defensive conversation we're having right now. The Raptors are going to see the Grizzlies tonight. Um, we, I got a good look at them last night in that Spurs game. Have tried to check them out pretty much every night since John Morant's been been back in the lineup. They're yes. five and two. They have a slight negative net rating during that time, but five and two is five and two as they try to climb back up here. What have you seen from Memphis since, since Jaw's been back here? And I know they're not getting Adams or Clark back anytime soon, but otherwise they're kind of healthy now for the first time all year. Uh, well, one, you're seeing the impact of John Morant to where some of the offense before was like, okay, where are we running? What are you getting into? How are you going to get into it? And it's like, oh, we have Ja. He can just take two dribbles. He's in the paint. The defense helps. Uh -huh. Now we can play out of it. I think with Ja coming back, he's also re-energized them defensively, which to me is the secret part of the Grizzlies' success in their team. They have to fight on that end. They have to show early help. They have to use their personnel well and be able to push on the other end. So I think we're seeing more of them getting back to the formula of, hey, let's get some stops. Let's run on the other end. Jaws are pressure point. Desmond's obviously been playing well. Jaron can kind of slot back into a more natural role. Uh, the Marcus Smart usage has been fun as far as just, hey, he's a screener again. That's fun. Oh, we can't just stash a non-shooter on him. He's screening for John Morant. Like it just, those kind of little differences have been fun. Uh, the trick is just, can they put it together? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I In mean time too, right? Like they, they, Hunted the first 25 games of the season, basically. So they're the clock's sticking here a little bit for them, too. I, I felt like just the start of the season for them, too, was just like they were like, oh, wow, we really are so short. And the rest of it, there's like almost no point in us trying to like get some of these results together. We really can't beat anybody. And now Ja comes back. And yeah, I mean, you, you see a different renewed level of fight with that group. And um, yeah, the Raptors are a little unfortunate to catch them outside of this 25 Second night of a back-to-back, -back, though, and Job yeah. banged his knee a little bit last night. So he also we'll dunked on Victor, which is, which is wild. And like... To get the to set up the dunk had that weird little hesitation uh -huh. change of direction on the baseline. Like he 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 also had like a a pretty nasty step back against Wembenyama that didn't drop, mm. but the actual move had kind of he went full inflatable arm flailing tube man mm. uh, standing in place there. And and of course uh, I think John's gonna be very happy to see Yakuperto once again. I feel yeah. like two of his all time highlights are against Yak. Unfortunately, uh, poor guy, man. This guy just loves dunking against San Antonio, apparently. Uh, Steve, before we let you go here, this is not related to the Raptors or, or the game tonight, but you did have a great thread last night on Thunder Celtics as that one was going on. Great Another game. really good game for the Thunder. Um, what did you make of their ability to put the Celtics in a situation, A, where they had to make some real defensive adjustments, and then B, how the Thunder were able to handle those adjustments down the stretch? I, I think it was a real light bulb moment for me as far as how good the Thunder are and just the little things they do and the style of play that they have. It's a lot of drive and kick. They're going to keep driving. They keep pressure on you. But when you watch the Thunder, look at how they clear the wings and how they clear space that way and they space flat or the amount of guard-to-guard -guard screens and where, where they come from, where they sprint from the corner and now it's a guard-to-guard screen and, hey, I want to switch, but I'm out of position. So now I'd get the switch. Now Alexander can lead the dance. Um, taking Boston, who had done really good defensive trickery against the Clippers and the Lakers by putting Porzingis on a non-shooter and making the, whenever it, whether it's Zubac or Anthony Davis, making his pick and roll a switch, didn't necessarily work as well against OKC because they're like, okay, cool. Nice late switch you have here or nice drop. We're going to just put other people in action and keep mm -hmm. pressure on you that way. But just their belief in how they have uh, 
want to play the game of basketball, the vision they have as far as we have a lot of people who can drive. We can punish you in different ways that's not just pick and roll. And it's hard for teams to really get a hold of them because they're just like a moving target offensively. And that's been the biggest part for me in watching the Thunder ascend. It's just like you never feel like they're getting away from what they want to do, even if they're not succeeding. And I think that stretch where teams start to put, you know, their bigs on Josh Giddy or started to load in extra help, help them understand, okay, we have to keep things moving. Mm-hmm. And we have to keep pressure points. And I think that adjustment has been the biggest part for OKC. How would you guard OKC? I mean, obviously it depends on your roster, but if you had to sketch up I mean, an idea. It's it's all about early help. You'd okay. have to show Shea Gilgis-Alexander body, so you need your help in. The tricky part, again, is they mix in the cutting. So every time... You know, if my defensive mind goes, okay, show early help, you're good. They just mix and match. So they just take away the next thing you want to do. Like, okay, we've got our help built in. We're switching. We're good. Mm-hmm. You have to sustain the efforts because now <laughs> here's a cut from the weak side. Yeah. So now you're ball watching. Oh, no, I'm out the way. Hey, there's a gap. I'm gone to that gap. Yeah. And so that's the pressure that OKC puts on you where it's like, okay, I think we figured them out. Oh, they've thrown something else at us. So it's the drives. It's the pick and roll. It's the cutting. More drives. Mm-hmm. Uh, more drives. Uh, Chet Holmgren, Shea Alexander, <laughs> Jalen Williams, more drives. They're yeah. very good. And, oh, by the way, they force more turnovers than any team in basketball, so the transition game gets going, too. There's, uh, yeah. yeah, I don't, I don't I know, I can't man. wait to see how they fare in the playoffs, too, because, you know, this is something where I just want to see, like, a team fully study and cope with it and see how much they can slow down. Because, you know, like, they've been in play-in settings, for example, and teams have been able to do some extent of that. Of course, Chet wasn't around for that. Chet being a... And J-Dub wasn't quite J-Dub yet. Yeah, he was on his way, but he, he wasn't quite that no, level I mean, this yet. Is a, this is a dynasty in the making. Yeah. So, all right, Steve. <laughs> Appreciate you. We'll be talking a lot of OKC going forward. Yeah. Let's see if I get number three. Oh, you'll be back, man. You'll be back. Come Anytime on, you man. say yes, you're back. Yes. <laughs> you mean potential Raptors head coach J.J. Redick has you on? And we can't have it? No, okay. All right, uh, we got to let Steve go. Yeah, make uh, sure you check him out, though, at Steve Jones 20 on Twitter, at The Dunker Spot, excellent podcast with him and Nikias Duncan, uh, who we also need to have on the show sure, uh, yeah. at some point. All right, time, time now. now. Yeah, oh, we're going we to do together? it in stereo here? Time now for Between the Lines, brought to you by Brett Rivers. Take a chance. I thought you were going to join in on that, but yeah. go ahead. What, what's going on? Uh, what's Raptors are one-and-a-half-point dogs tonight, uh, over-under set at 227. So the mm. key injury report here. John Morant did appear to bang his knee a couple times last night, but he is not listed on the injury report, so he's looking like he's good to go. Uh, Derrick Rose did come out of that game, though, and he's not going to play tonight. Mm. Vince Williams Jr. also out, and then, of course, Brandon Clark and uh, Steven Adams Mm. remain out uh, longer term there. On the Raptors side, Grady Dick is with the 905. Otto Porter Jr. is questionable due to uh, a knee sprain. So that's about it. Pretty pretty clean. The the Grizzlies are on the second night of a back-to-back. They went... Not all the way down to the wire with the Spurs last night, but yeah. it was a close game. They, they had to play their guys a, a bunch. And then obviously the big thing you're looking at here relative to the record is that they're 5-2 and two since since Jaw came back, and yeah. this is a much different-looking team. How are you feeling, Wolf? I, I feel like the Raptors have played Memphis pretty well. Over the years, last year, one of the most memorable games to me was seeing the Raptors make this huge comeback against, um, I mean, whatever. They didn't have some of their players, the, the Grizzlies. But, you know, uh, the notable points was... Uh, you know, Scotty making a huge play defensively down the stretch and then having two buckets over Jaron Jackson Jr. So I, I think they've matched up well. I think the, the issue with the Memphis had presented Toronto previously was how effective Dylan Brooks was guarding 
Pascal Siakam. I think he might be the best player in the league at guarding Pascal specifically. Obviously, he's no longer there. So I actually think I like the Raptors in this case. All right. 227 feels kind of low too, by the way. Plus, uh, it's game one of a very, very difficult six-game trip through the Western Conference. Let's so get this. Get one. Let's get one. Let's get one. And then we're one closer to the pizza party. But that was Between the Lines brought to you by Bet Rivers. Take a chance. All right. Uh, that does it for us today. I've been your host, Willow. You've been listening to The Raptor Show on the Sports Radio Network. Make sure you find The Raptor Show wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe and please rate review the show. Thanks once again to Mark Stein, Steve Jones, producer and co-host Alex Wong, Blake Murphy, board producer Derek Brandale, Jennifer Wolnick, David Sis, Jeremy Edited. We'll talk to you tomorrow.